Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a news program, and it was covering immigration detention centers, and specifically the presence of COVID-19 in those centers. This story sparked my awareness of those currently held in conditions in which it is very unlikely, if not impossible, to protect themselves from coronavirus. And one of the questions that came from this is whether this extra vulnerability for some is part and parcel of a functioning, if flawed, justice system. Is it okay, in other words, or is there more under the surface for the church to consider? In 2018, one of our covenant writers, Hannah Bowman, a prison chaplain in the Diocese of Los Angeles, wrote an article titled, A Christian Case for the Abolition of Prisons pretty radical title. You can find it in our Covenant archives. I got in touch with her and I asked her to write a series about what COVID-19 reveals about incarceration in the United States and what Christian responsibility may or may not be toward these civil systems. You can read part one of that series now on livingchurch.org forward slash covenant and part two will post tomorrow. Today, we'll hear more about Hannah's work and the development of her vocation in this area. We'll also dig into some theological and practical frameworks behind the way prison conditions have developed in the U.S. and hear a case for different kinds of Christian presence in prisons as a way for those who follow Jesus to meet him. Hannah, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Now, can you tell me a little bit about 
your own work with prison ministry, particularly how you got started with what you do? So I got started in prison ministry back in college, actually, about six months after my baptism. And I was going to a, a college chaplaincy at the time. And that um, that congregation had a connection with a juvenile detention center that was nearby. This was in upstate New York. And so, you know, here I was, I was a college student. I was new to Christianity and the Episcopal church, and I really wanted to do something that would make a difference in the world. And so I started going out on Thursday evenings to this Bible study at this, this juvenile detention facility. And it was just really a life changing thing. You know, I was 20 years old, 19, 20 years old, and they were mostly 14 or 15. And we would go and have three of us and three girls who were incarcerated. And we would, you know, do a little service, read the gospel for the week, talk about it. They were some of the best theologians I've ever met. Um, You know, maybe sing a song together and just be able to be together. And I did that consistently for a couple of years. And so that really made me realize the tremendous power and intimacy of being in relationship with people who are incarcerated, that you are getting as much from them as they are from you. And that it's really this, it's what Father Greg Boyle calls exquisite mutuality to be in these, these relationships of, of ministry and chaplaincy. So I came to believe that this is an essential duty for every Christian and a particular calling for me um, to be aware of these places on the margins and to to recognize the weight of this really, you know, I would say evil system of incarceration that we have built um, in the name of justice. And so what began to weigh very heavily on me was the way in which we've structured our society in ways that are, um, I would call them violent, in ways that are punitive, in ways that are really you know, unkind and cruel. And and the more I was reading about prisons, and I became really sort of obsessed with this question of why do we have prisons? And what, you know, what is it like to be in prison? And the more I was reading about it, the more I was really horrified by what I saw. And the more I felt like this is where Um, this is where the church has to be, is in, you know, is in these places. This is where Jesus is, in a real sense, is in these, these, these structures and powers and principalities of the world that the church is always contending against. And so, so it became a very um, profound sort of part of my theology and part of my own my own discipleship to say, what does it look like to go and bear witness to what's being done in our prisons and jails to go and be there? And so at about that time, um, you know, I was reading a lot. I was learning a lot. I moved here to Los Angeles, and then I started to get really seriously back into the work. So I... um, For a while, I was doing a a religious program out at a women's prison in Chino, which I've had to to stop since my daughter was born. Um, I also got very involved with PRISM Restorative Justice, which is the jail chaplaincy program that the Diocese of Los Angeles runs in the L.A. County jails. And so for about four years, I've been a volunteer chaplain in the county jails. And what that looks like mostly is that I go in on Sundays, um, occasionally other days to visit, but primarily my ministry has been going in with them on Sundays and we go in on Sunday afternoons. We have a church service. We serve communion from pre-consecrated hosts. So we have a full service of Holy Communion. And then, you know, we walk around the jail and we distribute communion. We do a lot of anointing with, with consecrated oil for healing. We are present, you know, and it's as much a ministry of presence as anything that we're bringing in. It's just being there with them. Uh, we go in every Ash Wednesday. And when we go in on Ash Wednesday, we usually impose ashes on about 900 people. 
And at this moment during COVID, we are not able to go in. And so that has been a real challenge for, for me and for the other chaplains, many of whom were going even more frequently than I've been able to recently, who were, you know, who were used to going into the jail once or three times or more a week and who are now unable to go in at all except to write letters. Out of my own reading and research, I also became pretty dedicated to the political cause of uh, prison abolitionism, which is the, you know, the belief that we don't need prisons for public safety and that we don't have to keep trying to find ways to hold on to what's good about this very broken system, but that we can really build something new and better. And so that's been the other part of my work has been really doing work on the, the theological side of bringing prison abolition to the progressive church as something that I think we should be committed to of saying, how do we learn more about this? And how do we understand prison abolition, which has traditionally really come out of you know, more the black Marxist tradition, but how do we understand these political commitments as aligning very tightly with our Christian theological commitments? And so how do we see the role of the church as an abolitionist institution and as doing this work that will that will make prisons unnecessary? And so that's been then the other focus on my work more recently has been more on that, you know, writing and teaching on that theological side of trying to really make the connection with this very radical idea, which I think is very closely tied to, you know, the radicalism inherent to Christianity. And, and that's exactly what I was going to say is that what you are saying sounds on the one hand, quite radical. And on the other hand, it sounds quite basic. Um, when you describe your calling, you're describing it as many people might describe their calling to a place in the margins. Uh, and that, um, a very strong argument can be made that that all Christians in some way have this calling is to find where Jesus is waiting for us to participate and to become instruments and recipients of his grace in places that most people don't want to go. And this seems to me, you mentioned uh, you feel called specifically for a ministry that speaks to progressive Christians. And I hope also that your ministry will speak to Christians who might also consider themselves uh, more conservative. Nothing would make me happier than to get, you know, more conservative Christians on board with prison abolition. Um, I, you know, I have aimed at progressive Christians because I think, sadly, prison reform and, you know, non-retributive justice and prison abolition have been viewed for a long time as left-wing causes. But the reality, I should say, and one of the interesting tensions in my work is that if I look at you know, why we shouldn't have punitive prisons. For me, a huge part of the theological rationale for that comes out of a substitutionary understanding of the atonement and things that fit much more in a much more conservative sort of Christian theology. So yes, it, I, prison abolition is for everybody. What do you know from your research and from personal experience about COVID-19 in prisons? So the challenge in talking about COVID-19 in prisons is that it is impossible to overstate the danger and to talk accurately about what's going on in the prisons runs the risk of, of not being believed because it is, it is simply so shocking as to be unbelievable. Um, what they are finding because congregate living is so dangerous because COVID-19 is so contagious. What they are finding is that essentially infection rates in prison are approaching 100%. They, you know, there's a prison in Ohio that reached 90% 
infection rates when they started testing everybody. And that's with most of the cases still asymptomatic. And then they basically have stopped testing. The prisons in Ohio have said, if more than I think five people in a dorm have symptoms of COVID, they're just assuming that everyone is infected. Essentially, the prisons have given up completely on any type of containment. And if you think about, you know, in the outside world, the the extensive measures that we are going to, to try to prevent um, transmission of what is a really dangerous disease, it is, I think, even more shocking to realize that for these, these captive populations who don't have the power to protect themselves, um, they are all, they are literally all being infected. COVID is turning short prison sentences into a death sentence. Um, and people are dying. And you have to recognize also that people who are incarcerated often, because of their history, have are at high risk anyway. They have various risk factors that make them more susceptible to bad cases of, of COVID. And that there are many, many elderly people in our prisons because, you know, the U.S. more than any other country uh, keeps people in prison for life. And so the issue of geriatric populations in prisons is is very high on the concerns of organizers who are trying to get, you know, women in their 80s out of prisons before they die. You know, you mentioned the difficulty of the conditions, and I think the conditions of prisons are hard for people to imagine who have never been inside a prison or a jail or an immigration center. Yeah. Can you can you describe them a little bit, Hannah? Can you describe some of the elements of, of that um, environment to folks that may not have any experience there, including myself? Um, you know, conditions vary, right? And different facilities are better or worse. But generally, things that things that I have seen, there's no private space in prisons. And I mean that very seriously, right? The toilets are out in the open. The showers are generally at least partly out in the open. The, the intention of a prison is for no one to have any privacy, right? Because for security reasons. And what that means is there's also no way uh, except for solitary confinement, which is, you know, has its own really deleterious effects to isolate yourself um, from the people around you. So, for example, in the L.A. County jails, uh, there's a variety of living situations. But the reality is that many of the incarcerated people are in very crowded, you know, large dorms. So they might have a 100 people in a dorm. They're generally on triple decker bunk beds. So the space is very restricted. Even if you're on like a floor where people are in separate cells, in many cases, those are cells with open bars, you know, like you imagine in a, in a jail. So there's one hallway with open bars. So it's all shared ventilation. You know, obviously there's no, there's no airflow. There's no natural light uh, often in, in the jail. There's no windows. Um, and then of course, the other thing is that the, the sanitary conditions are very poor. And so I, you know, I will tell you that walking around the county jail, we will often see trash on the floor in the, you know, in the hallways by the cells, right? People throw things out of the cells and they just, they just sit there. Obviously, you know, there are efforts to clean, but it's very difficult in a setting like that. And, you know, hygiene is never going to be the first priority in a prison, right? Security is always is always going to take priority over anything else. And the places where that becomes really a challenge is in having access to um, equipment. I think now prisons are starting to provide face masks, although it's not clear what the quality is. But 
But generally speaking, they're not being provided with high quality PPE because, you know, there is a shortage and prisoners are never, never considered the most um, prioritized. You know, the reality of prisons is that money is very tight and that really affects what is provided. So hand sanitizer is basically out because hand sanitizer can be used to make alcohol and so generally is not provided. There have been many, many reports about shortages of soap. And so we think everybody has the ability to wash their hands with soap. But the reality is that in many jails and prisons, they are not giving people sufficient soap to wash their hands. They're expecting them to wash their hands with only water, you know, even after using the bathroom, even before they eat. Or they're providing one little tiny hotel soap bar per week. And if you run out of that, then you don't have any more soap. Um, and in many, in many situations like this, uh, prisoners who have money are able to improve their circumstances by buying products and are expected to spend money buying products at the commissary, which is the, the prison sort of store, which generally sells food and hygiene products at very inflated prices. So for those who have family support or for those who are able to work and make money, but remember that, that prisoners are paid much less than minimum wage most places, they are sometimes able to, you know, to buy additional soap, but there's always a calculus of what do you spend your money on? You know, prison food is is very uh, lacking in nutrition and often very insufficient. There are reports coming out of prisons in Texas that are on lockdown because they're trying to quarantine against COVID, which in which during the lockdown, you know, they're only serving two meals a day and the meal is essentially a bologna sandwich. They're not serving sufficient calories even. So prisoners are always having to face, even if they have money, they're having to face this question of, well, do I spend money buying packets of ramen noodles so that I don't starve? Or do I spend money buying you know, hygiene products, buying soap right now or shampoo if I can't get soap so that I have something to wash my hands with? Or do I spend money buying, you know, especially for, for female prisoners, do I spend money buying menstrual hygiene products, which are also often not provided in sufficient quantities um, and which are also being used right now in various prisons as cleaning supplies, because if people don't have things to clean with, you know, they will use menstrual pads because nothing else is being provided. So the reality is that the impulses in American imprisonment, which have led to wanting to spend less money and to a very retributive and punitive mindset towards prisoners, you know, they deserve what they get. And so why should we invest in them? Have led us to these conditions where basic needs are not being met in our prisons. You partly answered a question going through my mind, which is what is behind this, the establishment of this kind of system? And partly it's a shortage of money, as you mentioned. But I also hear from what you're saying, a deficit of imagination about what a human being is, what a human being is worth. In other words, which kind of human beings count? which kind of humans are fully human. But on the other hand, isn't this added element of danger and risk with COVID-19 or with unsanitary conditions, or you have a little trash in the hallway, or you're bored, or you're isolated, or you don't get a window with natural light? Aren't these part of what you experience in suffering? Aren't these part of what you experience when you 
do the crime, you pay the time, and you just have to deal with it. How would you respond to that? Well, so I think the first point which you which you raise and is really important is this way that prisons force us to confront who we see as not fully human. And, you know, I would be remiss not to mention extensive scholarship on the ways in which our current system of prisons and mass incarceration have really derived from slavery, from, you know, our treatment of Native Americans, our treatment of Black people earlier in this country's history. It is not a coincidence that most of the people in our prisons are people of color, are Black, are poor, right? So it is absolutely the case sociologically that prisons are not even if you think prisons are a just remedy, they are not being applied justly in our society. That, you know, that there's this this long joke about it's better to be to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent, right? That much of my ministry experience has been in the county jail. And county jails have been better than prisons at releasing and lowering their populations in this crisis. But in county jails, basically everyone there is poor because most of the people in county jails are being held pretrial just because they cannot pay bail. You know, you are right that there is always a tension because not everyone in prison is innocent, right? And not everyone in prison is there only as a victim of circumstances. I also think anyone who has been inside of a prison will tell you that the conditions in prisons, the conditions of incarceration and the conditions that are inherent to prisons and that our prisons will always tend towards are absolutely and fundamentally incompatible with human dignity. You know, that we are not talking about what does it mean for me to look at you as a full human and hold you accountable for the crime you have done or the harm you have done? But we are saying, how can I lock you in a cage like an animal, right? We are looking at people who have committed often minor crimes and we are saying, well, now you are at a significant risk of the death penalty via COVID-19, right? And, you know, if you frame the question differently, we would never say, oh, you stole something and so we have the right to infect you intentionally with a deadly disease. And yet in this COVID pandemic, to incarcerate someone, to send someone to prison right now is saying we have the right to infect you with this deadly disease. The other thing I would raise, um, particularly for Christians, is that, you know, I think I think our discipleship calls us to more than the bare minimum of of respecting people's human dignity. I think it calls us to more than society in general is called to. And I think our discipleship is shaped by the fact that Jesus tells us that whatever we do or do not do for those in prison, we are doing to him. It's really essential that we grapple with that and with our complicity in that, that we recognize that as Christians, you know, we've been given our marching orders regarding prisons and and they are clear and there is not, you know, there's not room for our own preferences or our own desires for justice in that. I think accountability is essential, but what I have learned from prison abolitionists and what I think is really relevant to Christian theology as well is that accountability is not the same as punishment, you know, and to learn that lesson 
would help us move away from punitive prisons, but would also help us in the church to deal more responsibly with people who have done harm. Because we see both sides of this from a Christian perspective. We see on the one hand that there are people who we are willing to cast aside and punish and say, well, they deserve what they get. But on the other hand, we see people in power, you know, in the church who do great harm. And our response is, well, we believe in forgiveness. We believe in the forgiveness of sins and we welcome you back into our fellowship. And to be clear, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm not saying we shouldn't forgive, but I am saying that an appropriate understanding of accountability understands accountability as something which is still compatible with forgiveness, that even when we are forgiven for our sins or for the harm we have done, we are still responsible for making that right to the best of our ability. And I think we're very bad at talking about that in the church because we view accountability as synonymous with punishment. And so we say, well, forgiveness is the setting aside of punishment, which it is. But at the same time, accountability can be a creative and life-giving way of living in mutual responsibility to one another in community of what the Christian life in community looks like if we understand it as something which is not about imposing suffering or imposing punishment, but rather about making amends and restoring the situation as much as possible. I'd love to jump off of this word accountability because there is an interesting, it seems to me that there's an interesting imaginary for people who are um, on the right and on the left when they imagine what the United States might look like if it were following Jesus' teachings. So you have different visions, perhaps, of what that might look like, or at the very least, different ways of getting there uh, for folks who are maybe a little farther on the right, a little farther on the left. But they both seem to have to me in common this idea that civil society is accountable to the teachings of Jesus. Whereas I'm not sure that that is clear in scripture. And the things that you've said have brought this to the forefront of my mind because you seem to be making what I think is a helpful distinction between what civic society is accountable to before God, which is the recognition of basic human dignity and responding to that human dignity. And then you have a whole other level when it comes to being a disciple. If you are a disciple of Christ, if you are hearing the words of Jesus, he is giving you a far deeper command, or at least a, um, a, a personal and intimate command to do unto the least of these in, in a very personal way. I find that to be a helpful distinction, whether you were intending to make that or not. I wouldn't quite make that distinction. Um... Well, it's both and. I think that distinction is helpful, right? Because I am not, you know, I am not a theocrat, right? And I don't think, I don't think you can talk about our responsibilities to one another in civil society more broadly in the same way as you do in the church or to Christians, because we live in a pluralistic society. At the same time, there are aspects of the, you know, boundless compassion of Christian discipleship that I absolutely think we should be trying to bring about more broadly. You know, I do believe that the role of the church is in part to bring about the kingdom of God, which is a kingdom of justice, and that that sort of eschatological um, 
culmination is something that is already in process and that we can already participate in. So, you know, it is a both and because there's a distinction, but there's also a sense of a sense in which as Christians, we are not called only to do this in our own circles or as our own individual personal discipleship, but also to to bring it into being in just structures in our civil society. I think about the language of um, Gaudium et Space, which is one of the Vatican II documents, is really helpful here, which talks about civil society being accommodated to the highest realities, which are spiritual. And I, I love that that way of, of imagining kind of what's going on at two levels, and yet there's an interrelationship between them. In what way do you see God using Anglican history and resources to give you vision, strength, or tools for what you do? I find the liturgical tradition of the Book of Common Prayer to be tremendously helpful in, you know, grounding grounding this work and grounding what it looks like to form a community across across walls. You know, I love the idea that if I pray the daily office and people on the inside and we give prayer books to people in in our ministry in the jails are praying the daily office, that that is something that we are doing together, that we are doing in the same words. You know, I, I am glad that in our ministry, we have the um, the the sacramental heritage of Anglicanism, and you know, and I'm and I'm a big fan of the Oxford movement and of sort of this combination of the the high church sacramentality with the emphasis on um, work at the margins that you see in in people like 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 Pusey and Keeble, right? And I it's been very important to me in my ministry in jails and prisons to focus on the value that that sort of sort of sacramentality can bring that, you know, we are there with ashes, with oil, with Holy communion. And that for people like me who are not in the jail every day, having conversations with people who are incarcerated, but who are there participating primarily in this sort of sacramental or liturgical ministry, that that can be a tremendously, tremendously powerful experience, you know, to have that experience of, physical connection when you're anointing someone and realizing that in the jail where there are no contact visits, this may be the only physical touch that that person experiences. Um, To be in the jail serving communion to people who are in solitary confinement, where the, the reality of being in community is impossible and the only way you can serve them the body of Christ is by putting it down on the floor to slide it underneath the door into the cell. Those experiences have shaped my understanding of the structural evil of prisons at the same time as they have shaped my understanding of, you know, what our sacramental theology means. I can't go to the Eucharist anymore without thinking about what does it mean to be in communion with those who are behind bars. There's a lot of talk right now about coronatide, quote unquote, as a time for deeper reflection on who we are, what we want to be, where we've missed the mark, how we're called to go about being the church. And with this, there can be a kind of overload. There's so much to do, for example, so I never do anything. Or I don't want to be overwhelmed by doing, 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 and then I'm afraid of getting caught up in a works righteousness paradigm. In a nutshell, there are so many issues to care about, Hana. How do I know if I am called to address this one? And can anyone respond in some way? I think everyone can respond in some way. Um, 
I think, you know, I think the lessons of Matthew 25 do unfortunately tell us that everyone is called to respond to all of these issues in some way. Um, and that way may be greater or it may be lesser. You know, I think everyone can have an incarcerated pen pal. Everyone can write a letter a month. And that would be a hugely powerful thing because because establishing those relationships protects those who are incarcerated and comforts them, but also gives us more insight into those who are marginalized. For me, prison abolition is particularly central because it isn't just dealing with questions of injustice and need, but also with these questions of harm and guilt and the forgiveness of sins. Um, for me, doing work with prisoners and with people who have done harm to whatever extent possible, because you're right that there is so much to do that it it is overwhelming, and we do have to you know have discernment in understanding to what extent we can bring ourselves to each part of the work. But to me, being in relationship with those who have done harm and and understanding better ways of doing justice in community is just absolutely essential to understanding what atonement with God means and understanding what's, you know, at the center of, of really the Paschal mystery. So, so I would say, you know, yes, everyone is called to this to some extent, but I think you're right that the way or the extent differs, you know, not everyone is able to do this work. Not everyone is able to do this work in the same way. Even for me, there are, there are ways in which I am not able to be in prisons, in jails, you know, even before before Corona tide, uh, there are ways in which I was not able to do as much as I might have liked because I am a mother, because I have other, you know, other responsibilities. And so how we participate can vary, I think, without um, without looking away. Right. We can you can always bear witness is one way to put it, that even when we can't do anything else, we can always be aware and bear witness and remember. Right. Remember those in prison as though we are in prison with them. Um, as the letter to the Hebrews says. Thanks so much to Hannah for that interview. If you're looking for a simple way to serve while sheltering in place, and you're interested in checking out a letter writing ministry like the one Hannah mentions, she invites you to email her at contact at christiansforabolition.org or through social media. The handle is at christiansforabolition. That's at X-I-A-N-S, the number four, abolition. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can find a link in the show notes that will allow you to give so we can continue to make these episodes. Look for more episodes coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts these days. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. I'm Amber Noel, your host and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.